Well, good morning, church family. And yeah, I know I'm the, the Advent guy instead of Christmas guy, but I'll say Merry Christmas, everybody. You know, <laughs> But good morning, Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here with us, whether you're part of this church family or, or visiting. Thank you for, uh, for taking your Sunday to, to join us. My name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. And so this, um, you know, Bev, um, Bev alluded to this, that we're in this, uh, this series, this season um, in December. Most people jump right into Christmas, but really historically this, this season is Advent. And Advent isn't just the, you know, the opening the chocolate like my kids do. They, anyone got those chocolate Advent calendars for <laughs> every day countdown to Christmas? Um, first thing my kids do, they, they wake up, they come out, and they're like, where's my calendar? <laughs> uh, but Advent really historically has been about hope, been looking forward to not just, not just looking back to the first coming of Christ in a manger, but looking forward to that second coming of Christ in glory. And so we're leaning into that this Advent season, leaning into, into hope, into the Bible's hope that it presents for us, for those who trust in Jesus, this, that glorious morn. So we, we're just singing, O Holy Night. And, you know, that, that line that I, I, I love, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And so we're leaning into that, that morning that is coming, that, that hope, which we talked about last week. Hope is, the, is not just a sort of a fingers crossed, maybe it'll happen, but a confident expectation of future good. It's like God has promised this, I am banking on it, it's coming, as sure as the sunrise. And so we're leaning into hope this Advent, but along with hope, Again, like, like I said last week when we started this series, uh, hope sort of implies that something is wrong, right? That, um, the example I gave last week is nobody, nobody's hoping for summer vacation when they're sitting on the beach already. Like, you've already got it. It's there. Uh, hope is for when you don't have it yet and you're waiting for it. And so the, the reality that Advent makes us... <laughs> I guess, pay more attention to is that, you know, we sing a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, and yet this world is still weary. And in that song, we sing, chains shall he break, in his name all oppressions shall cease, but look around, and there are still a lot of chains, and there's still a lot of oppression. And the world is still weary. And so without, the, without Advent sort of making us take stock of the darkness and say, yet the morning is coming, without Advent helping us to do that, we run the risk of just singing the Christmas song without really reckoning with the realities of saying, oh, a weary world rejoices, and yet I don't, and yet I'm weary so Advent is going, to help, is going to teach us how to hold on to hope. This is where that thrill of hope comes in. As we look forward to the new and glorious morn, even when it's still dark outside. Hope knows the dawn is coming. And so, so th- last week, we started this series with 
the hope of Jesus' return, looking forward to, to that day when, when, when Jesus, who is alive and reigning now, comes again in glory, bringing resurrection with him for all of God's people. Today, today we're going to look at the hope of redemption from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. And here's, so I'm going to, what I want to do is I want to read the whole passage here. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to see a couple really important things of where, where in a weary world are we going to put our hope. So if you have a Bible, open up to to Romans chapter 8. We're going to put it up on the screen here. Here's what, uh, what the Apostle Paul says, and this is not just Paul writing, but this is, in fact, God's word to us, his promise that we can hold on to. Writes this starting in verse 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That right there, let me just pause before we keep reading as Paul unpacks that. That right there is, is, the, is the, the tension of Advent. It says, There's the sufferings of this present time, a weary world. And yet he says that those sufferings are held in tension with this hope of a glory that isn't even worth comparing. Like that, that so far outweighs all of the suffering that he's like, there's no comparison whatsoever. An indescribably glorious future. Fleming Rutledge in her book Advent, I, quote, I, I quoted from this book last week. Get used to it. I'm going to keep doing it. Um, she, she writes this. So, sorry, Dave. I put these slides out of order. You can, you can go back. Um, here's what Fleming Rutledge writes. She says, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in the present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. It's Advent all year, people. <laughs> Advent all the time until we at last see the hope that, that we are waiting for. And so, you can, Dave, you can go back to Romans 8 now. The sufferings of this present time and the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Paul's going to unpack that. And he, he describes the sort of the cosmic situation of this weary world that we live in. He writes that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. This is just Paul pointing out that, yeah, hope is what you don't have when you don't have something. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
So let's, uh, let's walk through this to see, to see in this weary world where, where that thrill of hope is, where we can hold out hope. And, and the first thing I want us to see is that Paul holds out this hope for us for the redemption of the entire creation, the redemption of creation. And, and Paul anchors this hope in the Bible's big story. One of the benefits of, of, of Christmas, of going back and rehearsing again the story of the baby in the manger, is that it sort of in some ways makes us go back to the whole, the big story of in the beginning God creating a good world and things have gone wrong and God is on a mission to fix it. Romans 8.20, Paul says that the creation was subjected to futility. And that, that word futility, it, it means... It means the when you try to do something and it fails. You know, like ideally, this is you know, think this is how the world should work, and this is like this is how we tell our what we tell our kids the way the world works. If you work hard at something, you'll succeed, and you know, if you fail, you know, try again. Practice makes perfect, and that's that's a good life lesson. But in this world subjected to futility, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you try hard and you fail anyway. Sometimes you plan and the plans fall apart. Sometimes you are holding out hope for something and that hope is dashed. Futility is that idea of life isn't working the way that it's supposed to work. It, it has, it, this word in the Greek has the idea of, of a, a meaninglessness, a purposelessness. If you've read, if you read Ecclesiastes and, and, uh, and the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know, vanity, all is vanity. It's, this, it's, it's a similar word there. It's futile, empty. It's, it, it doesn't work. The life under the sun doesn't work the way it's supposed to. There's an emptiness to it, no matter how hard we try to fill it. And Paul here says that the whole creation was subjected to that futility, that brokenness, that this is in fact what is wrong with the world. And what he's referring to is all the way back towards the beginning of the story in Genesis 3. Genesis 1, God makes a good world because everything God makes is good. God doesn't make mistakes. He makes a, per- a perfect, beautiful world that is not subjected to futility, a world that works the way it is designed to work. And he creates human beings to populate and rule over and govern that world and represent him in that world. That's what our job is. But in Genesis 3, a catastrophic fall happens and humanity rebels against that good design, decides, let's take, let's take matters into our own hands. And the world, as a result, breaks. And in Genesis 3, God, in response to human sin, human rebellion, lays a curse on the man, the woman, on Satan, and on the creation itself. Here's what, Gen- what Genesis 3 says. This is God addressing Adam. And he says, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. The very, the very land you walk on. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You know, that, it's just this sort of this poetic picture of it's supposed to be beautiful, it's supposed to be lush, and now, now all that beauty is accompanied by pain. Roses have thorns. <laughs> the, the world bites back now. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, Adam and everyone else, for out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. That's, and that picture of returning to dust is what Paul, what Paul says in, uh, in verse 21. He mentions that this bondage to corruption. He says one day, he says, the creation is going to be set free from that bondage to corruption. Here's where the bondage to corruption started. This bondage to decay. That ever since Genesis 3 All creation is fading, groaning, winding down, falling apart. And Genesis 3 links that cursed earth with Adam and with all humanity and says that that you're going to be part of that now. You are going to be fading and groaning and winding down and falling apart now, Adam. This is what's wrong with the world. This is, this is what we feel every day, that we, that, that we Adam's children with, with hearts designed to live forever, now we're stalked by entropy. And we are dragged down to the grave one gray hair and wrinkle at a time. But Paul says, one day those chains come off. One day the creation will be set free from that bondage. So in verse, in verse 21, he, he explains how this, he, he, he lets us in on the secret that you get a glimpse of it in, in the beginning of the story. Verse 21, he says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, as if anyone would be like, hey, let's do this. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. A good question to, to answer here is, who was the one who subjected creation to futility? Who's, in, in one sense, maybe you could say it this way, whose fault was it? Who did the actual subjecting? And you could say, oh, well, it was, it was Adam and Eve. They were the one, they, they, they ate the fruit, they disobeyed. You, you could say, oh, it was Satan. This was all his master plan. But I don't think it's Adam. I don't think it's Satan. Because Paul says the one who subjected creation subjected it in hope. With, with a purpose, with a plan and a promise in mind. In, in a confident expectation of future good. See, there was a plan back in Genesis 3. There was a plan back in Genesis 1. Before sin ever entered the world, there was a hope. That creation would be set free from this subjugation to decay and futility. See, God is the one who orchestrated this plan. It was, it was God's curse laid on the world. And so he's the only one who is going to be able to bring this plan to fruition. And this plan, this, that, this one that he subjected the creation in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is the plan since Eden to reverse the curse and to have a family of God, the children of God, raised in glory, as we saw last week, and all creation with them. This was the plan since Genesis. And this is the plan that every December we celebrate again, that in the fullness of time, the promised Savior came. And so we see here in in Romans 8 that the purpose of Jesus' first and second coming, but the purpose of that first coming at Christmas was nothing less than the redemption of the cosmos, the redemption of the whole creation, to buy back the creation from the curse and fall. In fact, maybe you could say it, you could say it this way. Say it, I'll say it strongly this way. So when we think about the cross, because you know, this Christmas story starts with a manger and it's aiming at a cross and an empty tomb. Jesus dying on the cross is what the story is all about. The cross of Christ, the cross of Christ purchased the elect, it purchased all of God's people. It also purchased the creation. The cross of Christ purchased God's people and also purchased the creation. So we see the plan here in Romans 8 to set the creation free from its bondage to corruption. And the way that that rescue was accomplished for creation is the same way it was accomplished for us. Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, look, look here at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 here, it says... Uh, it, it, says it puts us in this, this really interesting way as Paul's describing the greatness of Jesus' work. It says that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It says, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, all the fullness of God in him, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, we are, we are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus' cross. The, the, the way that we can sing the Christmas carol, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, is the cross. There, there's, on, there's only one way into reconciliation with God. See, reconciliation means there, there's enmity. There, there's a barrier between us and God, and that barrier is sin is that we've, we've sided with Adam's rebellion. We are what's wrong with the world. <laughs> but reconciliation has happened through the cross where Jesus stands in the place of sinners, where Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve, where Jesus, who is himself the fullness of God, undoes the curse for us by taking the curse on himself. And that rescue, that reconciliation, that, that's available to all who will trust in him. It's not something to be earned through religious acts. So if you could kind of like, oh, I'm going to come to church at Christmas, that's not going to do it. <laughs> so if you could clean yourself up and sort of fix what's wrong 
in the world and in your heart, it's not going to work. There is one way that reconciliation with God happens. It's by putting your trust in Jesus, the Savior who was promised from the very beginning to set things right. And so you can have peace with God. You You can experience God and sinners reconciled by putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior. But see here, the gospel here in in Colossians 1 is is even bigger than that. The gospel is bigger than just an individual salvation. Because Paul here says that the plan was for Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. The cross that pays for the consequences of our sin redeems the fallenness of the creation itself. And Jesus on the cross absorbing the curse for us, Galatians says that he became a curse for us in our place. But on the cross, think of this, that Jesus absorbed all the consequences of the curse. Go back to the curse of Genesis 3 again and look again at what the promised Savior bears. You can go to the next slide, Dave, here. That the promised Savior bears the fullness of the curse. The pain promised to Adam tore through his wrists. The thorns promised to Adam crowned his brow. He sweat drops of blood in the garden. And this Savior was dragged down to the grave. But the story doesn't end there. The story that starts with a manger doesn't end with a cross. It ends with an empty tomb. And the Holy One was not abandoned to the corruption of this broken creation. Jesus broke the bonds of corruption and decay and death. And he rose triumphantly. And so that new restored world that we long for, that all creation longs for, liberated from the bonds of corruption, you know when that, uh, you know when that began? Easter morning. The first heartbeat in the tomb was the bonds of corruption breaking. As breath filled the king's lungs and death started working backwards, that's when that new creation was launched. And our hope is that one day, when he returns, we're going to see that Easter morning everywhere. And of course, that raises the question, if Jesus has redeemed creation... If that new creation began at Easter, if death works backwards now, why is the world still broken? Why does everything still die? Why is creation still groaning? And Paul answers that question in verse 22 with a, with a vivid metaphor that describes the state of the world now. That something has changed now. And he says, verse 22, here's what he says. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul paints a picture for us here. It's a graphic picture 
of both pain and hope. Let's think about this. All, Paul describes the groaning of the world as the, as the pains of childbirth. And lots of, the, lots of the women here, all the moms here, ex, have experienced this firsthand. And all the dads have sort of been horrified by that experience. <laughs> childbirth is pain and hope. And Paul describes this world as groaning in the pains of childbirth, that the state of the world on this side of Easter is still groaning and blood and tears, just like it's been since Genesis 3. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus, something has happened. Something has changed with that groaning. The world is still groaning, but now it's groaning with a purpose. The groaning is going somewhere good. It's the groaning of childbirth. Now all of the pain and suffering and brokenness of the world is no longer a signal of futility and decay. It says now it's the sound of a new world being born. This this metaphor... You know, last, last week we saw that Jesus' resurrection was the, was the first fruits of our resurrection, the, the picture that the whole harvest is coming. And I gave a metaphor last week that Jesus' resurrection is like the first domino. Well, now we can add another metaphor, if you'll, if you'll roll with this one. Jesus' resurrection is this pregnant world's water-breaking. Is that okay? Can we, can we go with that, with that metaphor? Jesus' resurrection is this pregnant world's water breaking. It's signaling the beginning of the birth of a new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the water breaking. And the bouncing baby, a resurrected universe, will be here soon. And, you know, that's sort of a, maybe a humorous metaphor to, to, to think of. But lay hold of this metaphor and have hope because this really reframes all of our suffering in this age. What this, what this means is that if you are in Christ, all of your sufferings and all of your trials in this world, every tear, every heartache, every broken dream are for you the contractions of the new creation, pushing you one tear at a time towards a world without tears, towards a world without futility, where life finally works the way it's supposed to, a resurrected world where at last his blessings flow as far as the curse was found. This is what all creation is waiting for, with bated breath, and with groans that are bringing that day closer and closer. Tim Keller, he, pastor and author, he, he, writes, he writes this. He says, We were not created for a world of death, of the loss of loved ones, of violence and loneliness. We must remember that on this side of heaven and judgment day, much of life will feel vain and pointless. The first advice, don't let the times of darkness completely overwhelm you. This world will not last forever. These are the labor pains. And a new world is coming. 
so, so we have the, the redemption of creation as our hope. And now Paul now, now brings that personal individual with the, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 he continues. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And you know, this verse is interesting because again, it, it highlights this advent tension between what we've already received and what we haven't yet experienced in its fullness. There's a lot of this in the Bible, this kind of already and not yet tension. Because he says that we are waiting eagerly for our adoption and our redemption. And you might, you might say, well, if it, I, when I put my trust in Jesus, I'm already, I'm adopted into God's family. Like past tense. I, I have been redeemed. Past tense. I, I, I'm in. My sins are forgiven. And that's true. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are part of God's family. You have been adopted into the family of the king. You have been, have been redeemed, bought back from all of your sin and made his forever. But there is still a sense in which we are still waiting for the fullness of that. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, we are waiting for that adoption, waiting for that redemption. Look at how the, the rest of the Bible talks about this tension. In, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, uh, the Apostle John writes, he says, Beloved, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. Beloved, if we are God's children now, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We're God's children now, but just wait till the day we see him. And the revealing of the children of God to share Jesus' glory, John says, you ain't seen nothing yet. We wait with eager longing for that revealing, that unveiling of the children of God. And so, yes, we are adopted, but the curtain one day will be drawn back on that. It's sort of the, pic- the, the picture, so to speak, of you know, our, our adoption into heaven's family is sort of like, you know, we didn't earn this. There's nothing in us that particularly would commend us to God. We're, we're a mess. But God in his grace, see what kind of love this father has of the king walking by and sees you in a gutter. covered with the filth of your own making and the king doesn't pass by the king stops and sees you in your mess and in your sin and your rebellion against him and he says I'm bringing you home with me and he picks us up and carries us home and he washes us from the mess clothes us seats us at the table with his family. And that's this now. That's the experience we have had now. 
But one day there is a coronation coming for all of the king's children. When they'll be put forward in glory and all the world will see. That's the adoption we're still waiting for. And the redemption that we're still waiting for. The king has paid our debts and made us his. But Paul says we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. This is the, the resurrection at the, at the end of the story that's coming, that's coming for us. That creation released from futility and released from bondage. One day we will be too released and set free. And I think this has two components. This redemption of our bodies probably has two components. One is, is just simply this, is that one day for God's children, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. The nail-scarred hand of the one who has suffered for us will wipe all tears away, and we will be free. There will be no no more futility of broken bodies. There will be no more wrinkles and gray hair and dementia and early death. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more arthritis. There There will be no more of all of the accumulated brokennesses that just weigh us down and drag us down. It will be gone. And the other freedom, freedom from suffering, but also freedom from sin. And I, I, I don't know about you, as I, as I, as I get older, and I, I, I've heard from people who've walked with Jesus for a long time, that this one starts to get more and more precious. That one day we will be free from sin. Because even though we belong to the king now, we have been redeemed, we are still walking around with all of the curse and fall still living in us. Even though we have, as Paul describes, the first fruits of the Spirit, the, the, the resurrection little by little starting to make our hearts new, it's all too slow. And I am still prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But one day I will be free from sin. And I wonder if you've ever really thought, taken stock of, you know, we know, we know sin is bad, right? It is an offense to a holy God and praise God for Jesus taking the punishment so we can be forgiven. But have you ever taken stock of just how much sin wrecks your life, your life? How much of our joy is stolen on a daily basis because of our stubborn pride, How much of the comfort that we could experience is robbed by our fear and worry and lack of trust in his care? How much conflict is caused by our selfishness? How many opportunities do we miss because we hide in shame? How much freedom are we missing out on? How much of the peace and goodness of God do we bypass because we are blind to his goodness and grace? Take stock of that, but don't wallow. Here's the thought, the hope. 
what will it be like when everything that interrupts our joy is gone? That's the freedom from sin that God's children are holding out hope for. John Newton, uh, who, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, I love John Newton, he wrote this to a friend. He said this, he says, What shall it be when all the children of God who in different ages and countries have been scattered abroad shall be gathered together and enter into the glorious and eternal rest provided for them? That coronation day when the saints come marching in, what will it be when there shall not be one trace of sin or sorrow remaining? Not one discordant note to be heard. Nothing to disturb or defile or alleviate the never-ceasing joy. Such is the hope to which God has called us. That day will surely come. As the present day has already arrived, every moment brings on its approach. Every moment, church. Salvation is closer today than it was yesterday. This is our hope. This is the hope to which God has called us. It's what Paul says as he continues. He says, in this hope we were saved. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. is not just to look back on the past and agree to a list of facts about Jesus. That this, is, this is really important to get right. And maybe, maybe young people especially, listen up here. Because I think, especially if you're a young person who's kind of grown up in the church, you know all the Bible stories, we can get this backwards. Faith is not just something that looks back to a list of facts about Jesus and says, yes, I agree with that. Yes, born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose from dead, check, check, check. The hope in which we are saved looks forward. Faith looks forward. Faith says, yes, Jesus died. Jesus rose. So I am holding out hope for this future, this redemption, this salvation that I will see it. That is saving faith. Don't don't settle for just a faith that looks backwards to a list of facts. The hope in which we are saved looks forward and grabs hold of all that that means for me. And it perseveres even when we don't see it, even when this weary world does not seem full of rejoicing. Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. It's like we don't have it yet. We have, we have solid ground to stand on. The tomb is empty. Our sins are forgiven. But in the meantime, as we await that day when all the chains come off, we wait for it with patience. With patience, Paul says. Saying every day brings it closer. And so... Even in our weariness, we can rejoice. If I can have the, uh, the, the, band, the, the, the band come up and, and join me. See, today is, uh, is Communion Sunday. By the way, if you didn't get one of these when you, when, when you came in, they're, they're there at the doors. You can, you can run back and, and, and grab, grab one. Half the time I walk, I walk in, I walk right by, I forget to grab it. <laughs> But I, I want us to think about this communion 
for a minute in light of this hope in which we are saved. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says it this way. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our way of waiting with patience and with hope. As we take this bread, such a small little piece of stale styrofoam. <laughs> oh, a weary world. <laughs> and yet in this little tiny reminder, we say Christ has died for me. He has taken my place. He has taken my sin. I am his child. I am in his family. I have been redeemed. And so we take this bread and we eat and we remember and we proclaim. Let's eat together. And then we take a little thimble full of juice. <laughs> Again, a very small picture that one day there is, will be a feast and one day there will be joy and the wine of the new creation will flow and we will be with our king and with our savior because of this blood shed for us and so we drink And in this celebration, we proclaim his death until he comes. He has died and he has risen and he will come again. So we're going to sing a song now. A song we've sung here before. It's a sort of a call and response song where the band asks a question and we answer with hope. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, this world is weary. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. But is a new creation coming? It is. And is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. And church, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Yes, it is. So let's stand and let's sing to the one who is worthy, who has rescued us.